are now listening to the Soccer Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Soccer Football Podcast Week 3. This is the podcast where we talk about Premier League soccer. We hopefully make you a little bit smarter of a soccer viewer by teaching you the tactics, the players, the ideas that we observe in the Premier League games. I'm Sev. Along me always is Smeek. How we doing? And we are going to talk about the week three of the Premier League. We'll start off this week's episode with a weekly introduction that we always do. There was some news in the transfer market. Not quite as much action as what happened last week, but we do have two moves to discuss. The first of those being the move of Ruben Diaz from Benefique to Manchester City. The deal is reported to be around 64 million euros and also involved the swap of Nico Otamendi, the Argentinian center back. Smeet, do you have any thoughts on this deal? Yeah, and we will definitely get to City's game later on in the podcast. Uh, they obviously conceded a fair few goals in that one, so they're definitely needed some defensive reinforcements. But this brings Pep's send, uh, spending on defenders to over £400 million pounds now uh, in charge of City. And I think this is going to be a very pivotal signing, not only for this season, but how we see City in the years to come. They're spending bonkers money, absurd money, and they haven't found that one real replacement for uh, company. Laporte is a phenomenal center back. Uh, we've seen how well he's done in the Premier League. But every other signing, John Stones, Otamendi, who's now leaving, um, and even Nathan Ake uh, and a few of these other guys have just not really stepped up to the plate. So I really think this signing is humongous for City, and he needs to work out. Yeah, and, you know... Manchester City won the league with Nico Otamendi as one of their starting center backs. It, they had company back there also, though. They did, but it leads you to believe, is it the personnel? Is it the execution? Is it the mentality? Is it just the way that the ball is rolled? $400 million on defenders is an awful lot to spend. They already brought in Nathan Ake for $80 million Euros this this transfer window. So yeah, you're right. We're we're going to be asking questions of City and their defensive record, you know, throughout the rest of the season. Now that Ruben Diaz is injected in into the lineup, um, so we'll see what happens with City and their back line, especially after scoring or conceding five goals this week. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I haven't seen too much of Ruben Diaz. I haven't really followed the Portuguese league in the past few years. I know he's regarded highly. Um, and that's obviously why he justifies that price tag, but we will have to see how he adapts to the Premier League, uh, and I'm honestly excited to see it. Yeah, I'm right right there with you. I don't really watch too much of the Liga Nos, but he's, he's definitely highly rated. He's been linked to every top Premier League team over the past three years, so we'll, we'll get a chance to see him up close and personal as soon as he starts to play for City. Do you know who the last big signing uh, defensively wise from Benfica was that came to the Premier League? I do not. It was the one and only David Luiz. Oh, really? He's the, well, I mean, the last yeah. big signing, like the last one? The last big defender that came from Benfica, yes. Interesting. They're a huge selling club, so that is pretty surprising. But 
uh, I mean, hey, if he has as good a career as David Luiz, he's doing something right. So, Hopefully, and he entertains us just as much. The other big transfer that took place this week, there was a couple smaller ones, but this one is worth noting, was Diego Llorente from Real Sociedad. He went to Leeds for a fee that was undisclosed. Moving on from transfers, we have a theme of the week. And, and if you have been following attention to the Premier League at all this week, you've heard plenty of conversation regarding it. But we're going to saturate the market of handball conversation a little bit more by talking about the handball after there was a bunch of high-profile cases of VAR reviews uh, on, on incidental handballs in the Premier Some League this week. And so uh, we're going to discuss it a little bit. Luke, just some general, you know, start us off thoughts on the handballs that happened this week in the Premier League. So if you're somewhat new to soccer, you would think a handball is fairly black and white. It can't touch any part of your arm. That's it. Case closed. Um, But there's been so many different rules implemented around the handball law that it's very difficult to understand what is by the letter of the law a handball and what isn't so there's always been this element of intent that that usually results in a handball being given so now with the introduction of var we have these slow motion replays of the ball hitting people's arms that the referee can now see in basically real time and then decide if it's a handball or not. And these reviews often occur in the penalty box, which is why it goes to VAR. So normally as a referee, if you see a a ball struck full speed, real time, and you can somewhat tell if it is a handball or not. Now we've seen a few calls this weekend where there is undeniably no intent, but yet it's hit a defender's arm in the box you can say by the letter of the law, it's an, another addition to the handball rule, is an unnatural position for the arm. And in some of these cases, you can maybe say by the letter of the law that it's a handball. But as a defender jumping up for the ball, let's say, you are, your arm's going to go wherever. If it, as long as it's not above your head, I don't think you can really move where your arm goes. You're jumping. And it's hit people's arms and it's resulted in a penalty. I am so not on board with this idea and this trend that we're now seeing. I think it's almost ruining some of these games. It's ruining the spectacle. It's ruining the true sporting nature. I was quite livid at times this weekend seeing a few of these being given. I'd like to know what you were thinking at the same time. Yeah, so they, they talked a little bit about it on, on NBC during their wrap-up show on Saturday, and they talked about the new IFAP rules that were implemented in the summer this year regarding the handball. And supposedly it it rewrote the rule, but it, it, in my opinion, it just kind of reinforced some of the ideas that I know about the handball. One um, specific area of, of conflict is does the the action of when the ball hits your hand, are you making your body bigger in an unnatural motion. That legislature is where a lot of the contention comes. And so now you have to try and um, dissect what is an unnatural movement. And then are you making your body bigger in an advantageous way? And that, that just becomes incredibly particular. I, I don't like the lengths that they're going to slow down the game 
and give you these direct frames showing exactly when, you know, a still of when the ball hits the hand. Because that leads you to believe, I think, a little bit that the hand was in an unnatural position. But when you look at it in the motion of a jump or in the motion of a sprint or in the motion of a slide to come over and protect, you know, or try and lunge at the ball, you know, your hands have to fall somewhere. And so I think that's where a lot of the contention comes in. When you see people like Steve Bruce, who benefit from the handball calls this week, going back and saying that that the VAR reviews have gone too far. I think, you know, somebody who has as many years in football as he does saying that justifies us saying we also don't believe that that's kind of how a handball should be reviewed. Right. And I thought that Steve Bruce interview was so refreshing to see a manager who's benefited from one of these calls just straight up say, I don't like this because I know at some point it's probably going to come back to hurt me, but it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel natural. It feels too forced. It's damaging to the spectacle and why we love the game. Um, So Seb, let me ask you this, that handball, the first week of games, Liverpool versus Leeds, where Salah struck the ball and it hit the hand. Do you still now view that as a handball? I do. And here's here's another thing about about the handball, and and this this is this is uh this is one that I was gonna make this is a point that I was gonna make about the Eric Dyer handball from that game, when Salah struck that ball, it was a shot on frame that was deflected away from frame by a, an outstretched agree. hand, which materially changed you know the outcome of that shot. Whereas the Eric Dyer handball was a header straight down. I mean, it literally the the trajectory was straight down. For a team that had zero shots on goal the whole game. You want to know what the likelihood of that header leading to even a shot on goal is? It's minuscule considering Newcastle has created zero shots on frame the whole game. How am I to believe that this speculative header that goes straight into a defender's arm is going to lead to any sort of advantageous outcome for the team? So you know, those that's where I see the material I, I difference. Can... Yeah, no, I that is that is a great way to put it, and I completely agree because I view a shot on goal when a defender is reaching and it hits their arm. If they're sliding to block it and they have an outstretched arm and there's a shot on goal, that is completely different to chipping the ball into the box. And you could because you can now ask players, hey, chip the ball into the box, head it down, aim for someone's arm. We can get a penalty, which is ludicrous. It it shows no skill. It shows no tactical awareness. It's it would be. It would be the ruination, possibly, I think, of, of And you talk about games. last week, those slide tackles uh, where a guy gets caught with no angle to cross or shoot in a very, you know, non-dangerous area and how the, the punishment doesn't match the crime in that respect. Think about a lunge where your, bot, where your hand is three inches from your leg or when you're jumping and somebody heads the ball straight down into your hand. That punishment... Versus that crime, it's it, it's light years away. It's it's not even close. It's just it's going to materially change how how the game is played, which just isn't right. Honestly, what I think is promising from all this, because it was such a high profile incident in so many of these games, is I do think there will be a meeting at some point with some of these managers and the BFA or uh, people behind the scenes at the Premier League to deal with this rule. Because it didn't just happen in a few games. It was it was basically a common trend throughout the weekend. And I do think this is going to be tackled head-on. And they're going to aim to reduce this uh, in the coming weeks. Yeah, it's hijacked the narrative from this week. And it's why we had to address it on this introduction. They ended the NBC broadcast by saying, does this rule change before the summer? 
Luke does this rule change before the summer? Yes. I don't think so. I just think it's so hard to change a rule mid-season. When you say rule, do you mean the written interpretation of the rule, or do you mean the way it's called? Be it the written interpretation with a new clause or the way it's called, I think that they're kind of two in the same. Do you think, do you think there are changes to the jurisdiction of handball in the Premier League? If, okay, caveat, if this continues the way we saw this weekend, I'm not sure if you can rewrite a rule mid-season, but I do think we will see the way it's called when it goes to the VAR room. Because I think if it continues, maybe, and we see even one or two more incidents in the coming weeks of this, I think there will be a mid-season meeting uh, with some some more high-profile people uh, with the clubs and behind the scenes in the FA, and they will look to change how this is called when it goes to the VAR room. The VAR wasn't really taken care of during the season last year. We've already seen how that's being changed this year. The referees are going to the monitor pitch side mm. now, uh, which they didn't do basically at all last season. Yeah, really. And there are less goals being disallowed from an offensive player handling the ball this season than there were last season because last season, if it hit the hand of a player, basically at any point in a buildup to the goal, even accidental or as minuscule as possible, the goal would often be called back. And I, that's definitely changed this season also. Yeah, and, and just one more point. You you play soccer. I play soccer. I've I've had a ball <laughs> it's a just it, it. Well, yeah, whatever. But I've had a ball <laughs> that you know a pass that gets redirected into my hand. There are times when there is genuinely nothing you can do. In fact, this weekend there were some instances of um, people, you know, having balls redirect off their hands where they actually looked like they were trying to pull their hand away from the ball, which is an even you know you talk about intent. They're trying to pull their hand away from the ball, and it just strikes. I mean, it's just. It's just such a, a high yeah. standard to hold players to. It is ludicrous, and I almost hate that we have to even really talk about it. I always view it as in the in the in the box. Even if you do have a shot on goal, I mean, everyone has arms. I've yet to see a professional footballer without arms. There may be one um, out there. Yeah, that's no disrespect to him if he is out there, but nearly every person has arms, and I think you can always somewhat tell whether there's any intent. Uh, whatsoever if you strike the ball in the box and it's going on goal and your arms are by your side and the ball hits your arm and your arm flies backwards there's that's just someone's arm by their side as long as it's not feet away from their body i think that as well is is reasonable enough to be no handball no intent because that's that's how the human body looks and is agreed and it feels so simple here i'm sure with the referees it's, it's that much more difficult with different stakeholders telling you different things. But that's the soccer football podcast interpretation of what happened regarding the handball rule this week. And with that, that is the conclusion of our introduction to the week three episode of the soccer football podcast. We'll be right back with a weekly summary where we go over all the games. Stay tuned. All right, we're back with the game week summary where we go over each game in depth, give you what we saw in terms of formations, players that stood out, coaching tactics, all of those types of things. And we go in chronological order, meaning the first game that we will talk about is the first game that happened on Saturday morning, which was Manchester United versus Brighton. Now, anybody who watched this game knows that it went different than the script may have led us to believe. Brighton took the game to Manchester United almost the whole game. Manchester United looked very lackadaisical. Uh, they had almost no pace in their midfield. I talked to 
a friend of mine who's a Manchester United supporter to try and diagnose some of the issues. And what he informed me of was that Paul Pogba recovering from COVID might have contributed to what I saw as a pretty clear lack of pace and lack of activity in the midfield. And what that meant was that Brighton basically took the game to Manchester United for most of the first half. Toussard looked phenomenal, and he hit the post twice in the opening 20 minutes. Could have done a lot better with those. Regardless, Brighton opened up the scoring. Bruno Fernandes chasing down Lamptey uh, in the box, just basically turned and kicked him, conceded the penalty on the ensuing penalty kick. Neil Maupe, everybody's favorite striker, stepped up, confidently did a Panenka penalty kick, Unreal. where he basically just chipped the ball over the di- diving David De Gea. So cocky, so awesome. As much as I kind of dislike Neil Maupe for his history, it was a baller penalty. Yeah, and I mean, the balls to do that on that stage, incredible from, from Maupe. Yeah, you look like such a such an asshole if that doesn't work out. Oh, the yeah. margins are just so thin, <laughs> and he took it confidently and was like smirking the whole time. Did the Mbappe celebration afterwards also... Um, Manchester United responded. Luke Shaw drew a penalty, and on the ensuing Bruno Fernandez free kick, uh, it was turned back across the face of goal. In my opinion, it was kind of a little bit of a foul that ended up ended up having Lewis Dunk turn in the 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 redirect across the face of goal. He was kind of getting manhandled, but regardless, in that manhandling, his foot redirected the ball into the goal to make it one one. And from then on until about 55 minutes in the second half, I thought that Brighton once again kind of took control of the game. But around that 55-minute mark, Marcus Rashford was played into space on the far side of the field. He got the ball on his right foot, cut in, fake shot, sat down Ben White. He pulled the ball back to his left foot, another fake shot, sat down Ben White a second time. And then he pulled it back onto his right foot, and a deflected shot went in to make it 2-1 United. That goal kind of came against the run of play, in my opinion. But it was a ridiculous goal. Maybe the goal of the weekend. There were some pretty good ones this week. And I'd like to rip on Luke Shaw uh, because I think he's a little bit of a, of a weak point in that Manchester United team. But I have to point out the fact that he had like a really good game this week and did a really good job of locking up Lanty. Can I say one other thing about the opposing fullback for Manchester United? So I was watching this game... Uh, when you press a team, that means you go into kind of an attacking shape defensively and you're running down and closing them down on every touch. And what I actually noticed and what Aaron Wambasaka has somewhat come and in, called into question for is his ability on the ball. Phenomenally defensively, one of the best defenders, I think, in the Premier League right now in terms of one-on-one and everything like that. But I did see whenever Aaron Wambasaka got the ball... Brighton seemed to kind of ignite their press uh, to another level. And I think that resulted in him giving the ball away in a few dangerous areas and honestly worked phenomenally well for Brighton during the game. Yeah, and he actually, uh, speaking of Aaron Wampasaka, him and Bruno kind of fell asleep on the ensuing response from Brighton. Basically, there was a deep cross that went to the back post and Wampasaka got sucked inside to a player that was already being marked and didn't account for Sully Marsh, who was running back post and headed the ball in for 2-2. I thought that was really deserved for Brighton. In fact, I thought United was a little bit lucky to be even tied at that point. 
Brighton had hit had hit the post, I think, five times, four times to that point. Both posts and the crossbar. Yeah, both both posts and the crossbar. So United was very fortunate to be in this position. They got even more fortunate when in the ninety-sixth minute of ninety plus five minutes of extra time, Bruno Fernandez converted a rightful PK and basically secured the game. I, I have to say, I mean, credit or cred- credit's due to Man United, but Brighton, once again, just like when they played Chelsea, kind of unfairly done by the full-time score. Um, I mean, just the, the shots, Brighton had 18, United had 7. Definitely definitely a hard loss for Brighton there. I think they really deserve something out of that game. But moving straight along to our second game, and that was Crystal Palace versus Everton. And I really thought... We've questioned how James would integrate into the league. And this game really shone out to me also. He's, I think, taken solid steps every week so far. I think he had a really, really good game. And he was instrumental uh, in the first goal. He played a wonderful first-time ball down the right-hand side into the box for Seamus Coleman, who did really well, took a few touches, and played it across to Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who opened the scoring. Uh, He continues his ridiculous run of form uh, and start to this season gets another goal and Everton have honestly looked fairly good so far I think Carlo Ancelotti has finally got a team now that he can almost call his own there's some really good players in there even I mean the front six you go through Decore, Allen, Andre Gomez, Richarlison, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, James Rodriguez and the only player that really you would look at and say maybe isn't up to a Ancelotti standard is is Andre Gomez, but that's a man that can still do a a very good job for you. Pickford, I know he is the England number one goalkeeper, but he's been called out and somewhat ridiculed, uh, especially by Liverpool fans, for his small arms. The small arms were there for everyone to see when Crystal Palace equal, equalized. Kuyate got up really well for the header off a Andros Townsend corner. Headed the ball basically into the center of the goal, but Pickford, who was kind of kneeling down or squatting down, ready to, to pounce, wasn't ready to react and swatted an arm, but it was nowhere close. And yeah, I really, as an England fan, when it comes to soccer, would like to see Nick Pope or somebody else really get a, even Dean Henderson, uh, even though he's not starting, get that role um, and just get the opportunity to prove themselves because I think Pickford is definitely a weakness for the Everton side. I know some Everton fans are starting to come around and see that he is lacking in areas, um, even though he had a great start to his career. Moving on from that, we saw the first incidents of the handball penalties coming along. Um, there was a no penalty on Richarlison when the ball struck uh, Crystal Palace defender's arm and then that's when the incident happened Ward unfortunately got his arm in the way the ball was headed down the box it went to VAR we saw a pretty hefty debate going on Joe Ward pretty much baffled after that call um, Richarlison converted the penalty and that was basically the end of the game Everton looked pretty solid defensively I thought they played pretty well on the whole they definitely outplayed crystal palace but obviously with the height in that side they are they are always a threat from set pieces uh and that's actually 27 years now since everton have started a season three and oh 
I wanted to look up that statistic and I didn't. And thank God you did because it's it's very interesting. The three and zero start is one of the storylines of the young season so far. So thank you for looking that up. Twenty seven years since they started three and zero. Twenty seven. Very interesting. They're making fun of Liverpool fans for thirty years since we won the damn thing. Yeah, well, three and zero is not uh, not anything other than a than a nice little uh, pat on the back for the start of the season. So we'll see how the rest of the season plays out for them. Yeah, and they actually look good. I know they've been spending a lot of money the past few years, but this is a season I think Everton fans may actually see their side finish somewhere near the top and not in the middle of mid-table. And at the very least, hopefully, we'll get a good Merseyside derby for once in a while. Hopefully not. (laughs) But moving straight along to the next game, I'm not sure if people were really taking much notice of this game. Uh, West Brom haven't looked phenomenal in the start of the season. Chelsea spending unreal amounts of money leading the pack out there in the transfer window this season. But this game unfolded in a way that I don't think anybody would have predicted. I'm not... We we were talking last season um, and going over Chelsea and the way they play. And we've always said that they looked at times irresistible going forward. They had a lot to them going forward, but they've always had a weakness at the back. They've invested now in Thiago Silva to try and somewhat solve some of these issues. But, I mean, the lineup from Frank, you have Kovacic and Kante as your only somewhat defensive-minded players in that front six. And N'Golo Kante, as good as he is, I don't really see him as that lone six player He's more of either a guy who you play in the double pivot or more of like a box-to-box. And Kovacic is just phenomenal on the ball, great going forward, can pick a pass, but I don't think he's got the defensive nous to try and cover that back four either, especially when you put a slowest player in the league, Marcus Alonso, next to a 36-year-old Thiago Silva. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I hate Marcus Alonso. And he was, he's, yeah, I hate him so much. Yeah, he is probably one of the biggest C-words out there at that club in particular. And there was, there was a run, I want to say it was in the eighth or ninth minute, when the third center back for West Brom, Ajayi, there was a ball probably 40 yards in front of him, and he just ran after it. Marcus Alonso had a 20-yard head start and still lost the foot race. It was it was honestly pretty funny. If you haven't seen the game, just watch the first 10 minutes back and keep an eye out for that. But it was West Brom that opened the store- scoring. Callum Robinson, quick counterattack. Matthias Pereira, who I thought had a great game, along with Callum Robinson, fed him on the left side of the box, and he hit a low, hard shot past Caballero because Kepa is now benched after they signed Eduardo Mendy. So I think Kepa is a 71 million pound third-choice goalkeeper now. The second goal... Pretty concerning if you're a Chelsea fan. Thiago Silva is now 36. He's obviously losing some pace. That's natural. But as center backs lose some pace when they get older, they're not as limited as strikers or wide players may be because you can read the game a lot better. You have experience. But Thiago Silva goes to control a ball. It slips underneath his foot, very similar to the Mohamed Sacco, or sorry, Stephen Gerrard incident uh, against Chelsea a few years ago. Um, Thiago Silva falls in the heap. Callum Robinson, who played really, really well, 
takes the ball, drives past the defense, finishes past Willie Caballero, and it is 2-0 to West Brom. Frank Lampard looking like he's about to cry or start hitting people on the sideline. And then from there, two minutes later, it is Kyle Bartley who makes it 3-0. This was a shock to literally everybody. I don't think anybody would have seen West Brom leading at halftime, let alone having a three-goal lead. Uh, And Chelsea kind of looked in disarray at this point. Second half, Mason Mount got one back for Chelsea with a long-range effort. Nothing really spectacular. It just slipped past the goalkeeper. Callum Hudson-Odoi then made it 3-2 in the 70th minute as Chelsea looked at this point like they were coming back strong, about to rescue some points. Uh, Hal Robson-Kanu was on the field at this point for West Brom. Wales' hero from the Euro 2016. Uh, I honestly thought he retired. I thought he hit the high point of his career there, and we were never going to see or hear from him again, besides on Welsh TV. But he was back on the field. Thought he did a decent job, worked hard for his side, but it could not stop Temi Abraham from scoring a late equalizer in the 93rd minute, battling back from 3 nothing at halftime. Pretty solid comeback, but from a position where you'd never want to be in against West Brom. Yep, and they have four points now from three games and sit in 10th place in the table. So very early on. But. They've come up against some hard teams, but yet that is, that's concerning. It's a lot of points dropped in a very competitive week if they're going for the title. I mean, it's, it's, it's the third week, but it's worth noting, like I said, four points from three games. They have plenty of plenty of games to make that back up, and they also have some top players coming back from from injury in the near future. So they'll most most certainly right the ship. So the next game was the late game on Saturday, and it was Burnley versus Southampton. Back in lockdown, there was a lot of tweets circulating that were saying, "I would take Burnley versus Southampton if it was the only game on." I'm dying for football right now. And I liked that tweet, and I retweeted it. And then Life said, oh, yeah, well, you just started a soccer podcast that makes you watch every game. Here it is. Put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> and so here's what I'm going to say. Southampton beat Burnley one nothing. All right. The early game on Sunday was actually my favorite game of the weekend, despite it making me wake up at 7.30 in the morning to catch. And it was Sheffield versus Leeds. Two teams that have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart. If a team gets promoted and then just goes for it, it's just the best feeling in the whole entire world. And that's what Sheffield did last year, and that's what Leeds are doing this year. Leeds came out in a 3-1-4-2, which is not a formation that I think I've ever seen in soccer in my whole entire life. And what it meant is that Calvin Phillips a lot of times had to cover as another outside back or center back or Jack Harrison and Helda Costa had to get up and down the flanks like crazy and they all do it. Did they not play with a goalkeeper? 3-1-3-2. That's 10 players. 3-1-4-2-1? No. I misspoke. Sorry, continue. All good, all good. (laughs) But speaking of the goalkeeper who we gave a hard time for last week, Meslier, he was phenomenal. He had two big saves in the first half. One, he slid across uh, the phrase of goal to deny a shot from the top of the box by John Lindstrom. 
And second, he had a shot from somebody who he deflected over the crossbar. Uh, pretty hard shot that he deflected over one-handed left hand. And so he he had a terrific game. He was the highest-rated player on SofaScore, which, I mean, that means very little other than what the statistics tell you. But at least you know he was the highest-rated player on the field. And another player who we shit on a ton so far because he's conceded two penalty kicks in two weeks is Cock, and he was also superb. He has pretty solid distribution from that center of the back three center back position, and he got over a bunch of times to deny people who were making runs across the box. He had a phenomenal game, and if I had to give my man of the match to somebody, it actually would probably be him, despite Patrick Bamford scoring the game-winning goal. Both these teams are awesome because their roster's built to do one thing and one thing only, and that's play the play style that their managers want. So you have to be really careful about who you recruit into these systems. And I think Leeds done a really solid job of that, and Sheffield likewise. I thought Sheffield's player of the game was Sanders Burge, who is the Norwegian 22-year-old midfield who they bought from Gank in Belgium. And he had a really solid game. There's actually fans giving him some crap online, but I thought he was their player of the game. It was a closely contested game where the teams shared punches and it ended in the 86th minute with a Patrick Bamford header where Rodrigo was able to poke the ball out wide to Jack Harrison, who had been dangerous running up and down the left side all game. He had a left-footed outswinger uh, that Patrick Bamford cleverly found a pocket between two center backs and was able to head home to make it 1-0. But like I said, just a really great contested game where two teams were playing their styles perfectly, and I enjoyed the shit out of it. Yeah, what do you? Uh, I know Sanderberg was linked with a few top teams. I know Liverpool, Chelsea, Man United, and a few teams overseas were all looking at him. But what did you make of Rodrigo? Because he is Leeds' record signing. Uh, I think he's like forty million dollars, and I haven't seen anything from him this year so far. But I didn't catch this game. Yeah, so he came in as a halftime sub for. Tyler Roberts, who played as a second striker with Patrick Bamford. Tyler Roberts did absolutely nothing in the first half. Like, I didn't even know that he was on the field until uh, he was substituted out for Rodrigo. And when Rodrigo came on, he looked like a player who was fairly tidy, but lacking ideas. But he actually grew into the game and gave, like, a really solid shift. And... I walked away impressed. I mean, you want your 40 million pound striker to do more, record signing to do more than just put in a good shift. But he looked tidy. He put in a good shift. He he had a couple of decent balls. He had a left-footed shot from top of the box in like the 80th minute, 75th minute that was pretty easily saved, but was a good idea. And then he worked hard to retain a ball and kick it out wide to Harrison for the MLS assist on the final goal. So I actually walked away from it saying, Rodrigo, Looks like he could be a pretty good player. I just want to see a little bit more from him. And if, maybe if he's getting starts and getting a little bit more game time, he can find some form. Yeah, good deal. And, I mean, I always thought he was he was younger when they signed him, but I think he's 29 now, which, to my knowledge, if you stay in the Premier League, money well spent if he's, if he's actually contributing. But I want to see more out of him this year uh, because I've heard good things about him from the Spanish League. Just, uh, but, sorry, just a couple more thoughts on the game. Sheffield United, I've watched them play soccer 20 times now. I have such a hard time telling apart players on that team. It is just like nine stocky, black-haired dudes. 
That's all it is. That's their whole roster. Yeah, and they're always, most of the time, within 30 yards of their own goal. So they all just kind of blend together and do the same job. They blend together, and they all got generic last names, like Stevens and <laughs> whatever. Other thing, speaking of names, we love names on this podcast. I shouted out Ender Stevens last week. Stuart Dallas. Stuart Dallas. Best name in the Premier League. Yeah, that's a that's a solid mixture of just the one of the best English names, Stuart, Stuart Little, who's been involved in many films, and then just Dallas out of nowhere bringing you a little Southern twang. Yeah, he's he's awesome, and he's actually a good player too. And then just finally, finally, Leeds. We've been impressed with them to this point. They're playing great football. My favorite thing about Leeds, and it has to be a Bielsa trait is that they have the best body language on the pitch that I've ever seen out of a soccer team. Tons of hyperbole right there, but they have phenomenal body language. Patrick Bamford chasing down shit balls, never once looks at his teammates and throws up his arms. Something doesn't come off. Everybody's hustling. They have phenomenal body language. It's something that Arteta talked a lot about when he first took the Arsenal job. Body language. When your teammate does something wrong, when the referee makes a bad call, just, just roll with it. And they have the best body language. And it tells me a lot about the character. So important. And soccer is definitely one of those sports where the mentality is so important and so underrated in a lot of aspects. And to see them like that is definitely promising for them to not only stay in the league, but then go on to do better things. So very excited. Uh, But moving along, Spurs, Newcastle. And uh, before I even say anything about the game, if you have not watched Jose Mourinho's post-game press conference, it is prime box office viewing. Go and watch it. Phenomenal, classic Jose, Jose, rather, that we've been missing uh, from the Premier League. It is, it is honestly incredible. Getting started on the game, and Spurs looked very good. I thought uh, Harry Kane and Hyunwoon Son both looked super sharp. Harry Kane should have probably had around three assists uh, in the first half. He was... We talked about it last last week, how underrated he is as a almost playmaker in that number nine role. And he was putting balls back across the box in dangerous areas, doing sharp little turns here and there. I thought he was looking very good. And he actually set up Lucas Mora for the first goal in that game. Spurs took a 1-0 lead into halftime. Kimmon Son was replaced at the break by Steven Bergwijn. We're hoping that's nothing serious. It looked like a hamstring injury, um, but hopefully he's back out there soon because he's a joy to watch. And considering Spurs' injuries last season, is the last thing that Jose and that squad need. And he played pretty well in the first half now. Yeah, no. Son, of course, I, I feel like he's one of the most reliable players uh, in the Premier League, maybe. I, he, no questions asked, always gives you a solid shift. And... He not only did that, but had some great balls. Uh, looked very dangerous. He hit the post the first half, too. And I think Spurs were deserved nothing but a 1-0 lead. Probably should have had more in that first half. Moving on to the second half. Basically continued in the same fashion, all in all. Newcastle didn't really ever threaten the goal too much. Uh, Tottenham looked dangerous consistently. They were... Very, very unlucky not to grab a second, but maybe the game changer and the most important part of the second half was the introduction of Andy Carroll. 
for Miguel Almiron in the 77th minute. And watching Andy Carroll nowadays, I cannot believe that at one point this man was a $35 million striker. With Unbelievable. <laughs> no. With the, with the hopes of England behind him and trying to play real football in a Liverpool side. Because from then on, Newcastle's game plan basically reverted to let's hoof balls 50 yards in the air towards Andy Carroll. He had some solid elbows in this game. Got, I think, five fouls given against him uh, within the first five minutes he was on the pitch. But it brings us back to the initial segment on the podcast of the handball rule. He had one header before where he headed it down into Eric Dyer's arm as they both contested a header. That one was not given, I think rightfully. Then again, later on in the game, in the 93rd minute, there was a penalty given as Andy Carroll jumped for a header in the air. Eric Dyer jumped with him, turned his back, and... Andy Carroll headed the ball down into Eric Dyer's outstretched arm. The ball still landed in the penalty area, bounced around a little bit, but as Sev said earlier, this was a game where Newcastle didn't muster a single shot on target up to that point. It is, I can understand the frustration from Andy Carroll and maybe some other Newcastle supporters, because if you have that type of game plan and the striker heads the ball down and it keeps rebounding off people's arms uh, in the box. I feel like at some point something has to give, but there's nothing you can do as Eric Dyer in that situation. You're trying to go up for a header against a 6-4 massive Brahmi. Um, and, I mean, he just heads the ball down, hits his arm. The ball wasn't going to go anywhere except maybe further into the box, but it was already in the box. And penalty was given. Callum Wilson dually slots at home. Jose Mourinho walks down the tunnel, doesn't shake Steve Bruce's hand. We've seen that one before. I think he was off the pitch before the, the ball even went in the net on the penalty kick. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think he did leave before he saw Callum Wilson, Callum Wilson score. And uh, the like, as I said, the, the press conference after the game was prime box office. Jose Mourinho gave... I think what will go down in Premier League folklore as the special box interview. He was talking about the Spurs box, and I think he said box 20 times in the 30-second piece that he gave, and he called Spurs box a special box. (laughs) And uh, was just talking about how his guidance to his team is to keep the ball as far away and out of the Spurs box as as many times as possible because they have a special box and he thinks they get given too many calls and special things happen in there against them. Yeah, he also had the line, he had a couple notable lines, like you said, but he had one line that was, I will not speak on the handball penalty because if I want to donate my money somewhere, I will donate it to charity and not the FA, which was a yeah, great line. I, yeah, I And then the classic. other one was, and as an Arsenal fan, this just warmed my heart, saying that Tottenham gets no respect as a club for what they've accomplished. And I was like, what have they accomplished again? But that's just me. Yeah, I, I don't know what they've accomplished. Like, they've obviously been a player. They've been top four. They've been in that upper echelon of clubs, but they have zero hardware, silverware, whatever you want to call it, to share for it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so that was Newcastle 1, Spurs 1. The next game... On the docket is a pretty high-profile game between two teams that are 
really fun to watch, honestly, even if one of our guests really does not like one of the teams. But that's beside the point. It's Manchester City versus Leicester City. Now, just a little bit of background. Luke and I are just basically going to have a free-flowing conversation about this game because of the rule that we have that says that Lou takes Arsenal games and I take Liverpool games. Since they played each other this week, we just decided two of the games we're both going to handle. We gave ourselves the two biggest games of the weekend. Uh, so that was the City game, the City City game, and the Arsenal versus <laughs> Liverpool game. So, Luke, just general thoughts on how this Leicester versus Man City game went? It was a joy to see. Um, no, the first goal, when Man City scored, Man City started the game as they usually do, dominating possession, looking very solid, basically keeping the ball in Leicester's half. And once uh, that first goal went in, it was a Riyad Mahrez, an absolute thunderbolt of a strike with his weak foot. foot. Weak foot. That was crazy. Incredible. I mean, you can't even be mad at that as a defender or as the manager of the conceding team. That That is a special goal. It was a corner, ball got headed down, rifled, into the top left corner by Riyad Mahrez with that right foot. And from then on, I thought City, you know, was, it was going to be one of their 4-0, 5-0 demolitions because they spent a billion pounds and no one else can spend that much money. But Rodri got a goal disallowed. And from then on, it was the Leicester penalty and Jamie Vardy show. Yeah, so in the 35th minute, Harry Barnes was pushing the ball at the defense. He slipped Jamie Vardy through right past Kyle Walker. Kyle Walker turned and grabbed and dragged Jamie Vardy down. It was clear as day penalty. And Vardy took a cracker of a penalty kick past Ederson for 1-1. It was definitely a little soft. Vardy was definitely looking for it, to be completely honest, but I, that's a penalty. That's it's a cardinal sin, a though. Penalty. If you put your hands on somebody's shoulders while they're running past you in the box, it's like you're basically yeah. knowing what you're doing. And honestly, not only did I see a lot of the similar incidents happen with that Harvey Barnes cut-in um, and then looking for space and looking for the run of Jamie Vardy, that was a that was a very good out avenue for Leicester during this game. But every penalty Lester got was very much the same exact the exact same play it was crazy yeah. yeah i i that's why i think pep is trying to spend 62 million pounds on ruben diaz but it was every every single person in that back line was guilty of it the next goal wasn't a penalty it was one of the few in this game it felt like one of the few in this game that wasn't it was a threaded through ball from yuri tielman's to timothy castagna one of the bright stars of the early Premier League season. He took the ball all the way to the byline and sent in a low cross to the front post for Jamie Vardy, who took this really nice backheeled goal that just clipped over Ederson. Unreal finish. It was a phenomenal finish, and it shows Jamie Vardy's range as a scorer, not just some guy who runs in behind and chips the ball over the keeper. It's a very difficult finish at that. Yeah, and I actually noticed this kind of tactically during this game. Uh, it seemed like uh, they were playing that back five and Castagna was the wing back, but Priet, who was playing on the right side, tended to drift it, drift inside and almost play as a number 10 a lot of the time for Leicester. And Castagna was allowed to run and make those driving runs into the box. And one of those runs is basically how this goal happened. He was outside more of uh, directly going towards the box on this one. But I thought the 
tactics from Brendan Rodgers uh, and allowing those deep runs from these fullbacks um, really paid dividends in this game. And Castagna was part of that Atalanta team who kind of surprised us all in Europe last season. And I could see him factoring into the Belgian national team for quite a while because he, he looks like he's a player and now he's going to be on the radar of everybody because he's playing in the Premier League and doing it at the, in the top league in the world. There's another penalty, one of three awarded to Leicester City in this game. Vardy was once again slipped through by Barnes. Sorry, by Barnes. Garcia, Eric Garcia, the helmet-wearing right center back for Manchester City, Looking like a actually got to the ball first, but didn't realize Vardy was running in behind him. And Vardy really cleverly just stepped in front of Eric Garcia, who didn't know anything about Vardy. And as soon as Vardy stepped in front of him, Eric Garcia kind of reacted to try and win the ball back and knocked over Vardy. Uh, Vardy converted that penalty as well. This one was basically a picture-perfect penalty that he drove low into the right-hand corner beyond the outstretched arm of Ederson. Flexing and finessing. He pounds one and finesses the other. Just genius at work there. The next goal, absolute banger from James Madison. I don't, I don't think he's. I don't know if it's injuries. I don't, I can't figure it out. But he's not starting for this lesser team right now. But he comes on the pitch, hits a peach perfect shot into the top right corner. I was up off my couch at this point. Love to see Leicester, the Foxes, the underdogs, continue where they left off after winning the league and and actually now fighting for that top four spot. The Foxes were flying at this point. The game was four one and basically out of stretch. The, the f- next two goals were a penalty that was converted by Yuri Thielmans and finally a header by Nathan Ake. He just basically jumped higher than everybody else on a, on a corner kick and was able to score, and the game ended 5-2 to two for Leicester City. Ridiculous game. Once again, uh, after the West Brom result, just a result that no one uh, was foreseeing in this matchup. Um, concerns for City? Not really. No, I, I agree. Um, last season, we saw some of the weaknesses that this side has, but I do think they have so many injuries right now, and just the quality that they have in the lineup and the way they play, it's when they're functioning properly. Leicester are a good team, make no doubts about that. When City are functioning properly, it's near impossible to stop. Yeah, I think... They will get laid into by Pep. Whether or not that starts improving the performances alone or whether it's people returning from injuries or whether it's just more balls bouncing their way or whether it's just form or whatever the case may be. I don't see City maintaining any sort of form that resembles this. They'll, they'll, they'll come good. They're one of the most talented teams in the world. All right, next up is the late game on Sunday, and we called Leicester City versus Man City an unexpected result. I think this one, and we called Chelsea West Brom an unexpected result, and I think this one is just as unexpected. We have spent a lot of the last two episodes giving West Ham a hard time, even after they gave Arsenal a tough game. Well, they gave Wolves a tough game to the tune of 4 nothing, I don't think anybody saw this one coming. Seb, is it time to start fading Smeek's Pickums? 
it is absolutely <laughs> time to start dating Suzuki. I mean, I, the poor guy. He's just doing his best, trying to help out his buddies. I am doing my bucks. best. It's it's the it's nearly the, the. I mean, I don't see how these are losing. I pick the games I'm most confident on. I'm trying my hardest. Please don't start lighting the torches. Like I'm trying my best. All right. Let's just chalk it up to the depth of the Premier League. There's nothing you can do about the depth of the Premier League. It's, it's the, the most league unpredictable world. league in the world. That's why we love it. And if you want to make right? money, bet League One PSG every single game. That's how you yeah. make money. That is how you make money. But I'm still trying to do my best, and I'm just hoping the listeners aren't turning on me at this point. They're not turning on you. We have the most loyal listeners in the world, so don't sweat. Yeah. Love you guys. So, like I said, uh, not a game that anybody was expecting. It was the Mikel Antonio show. We love him. We've talked about him a lot on this. But before we start talking about what actually went on in the field, I just want to talk about the bubbles at London Olympic Stadium. I was thinking about these. Were they blowing? They were blowing. I was thinking about these, and I was thinking, what's an anecdote for the bubbles at this stadium? The bubbles at this stadium are like Weenie Hut Jr. And you'll never walk alone at Anfield is like the Salty Spittoon. I don't know if you get that reference, Luke. Is that a SpongeBob reference? It's a SpongeBob reference. I I kind of get it. Are you saying there's levels to the game? I'm saying if you're trying to be an intimidating soccer side, having bubbles blow around your stadium pregame is a terrible look. It is... It is not the most intimidating atmosphere to walk into. It nearly could remind you of a children's birthday party. It's, it's, I can't hit on it. I still love the song. We're forever blowing bubbles. Pretty bubble. I mean, that, it's got a ring to it. It's, it's become a classic thing at this point, but I don't know. The way I've always thought about sports, your warriors on the field and they're there. They're serenading the Warriors in bubbles. Can you imagine the New Zealand team coming out and West Bro- West Ham are playing the bubbles and the and New Zealand team haka. then cut then does the haka? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd Just be a spectacle. Polar opposites, polar opposites. <laughs> and I'm sorry if the bubbles has some sort of like symbolic value or something like that. Not Just that like, I know. let's let's fucking play some ball, boys. Let's let's go two foot somebody. But they did play ball. They did play ball. So the bubbles clearly didn't lead him the wrong way. It was the Mikel Antonio show. I honestly thought, and for much of the first half, Wolves were as good, if not better, than West Ham. West Ham kind of took Wolves out of their element in that they did what West Ham does, and they absorbed pressure and tried to counterattack. And a lot of those counterattacks were started by a... Well, it was started... Everything was started through Mikel Antonio... It was good defensive contributions from their center backs and their six that started a lot of the breaks. They found Mikel Antonio's feet, and he was able to pass it along to their wingers who were repeatedly dangerous. Like I said, I thought Wolves were as good, if not better, in the first half. The right side of Nelson Semedo and Adama Traore is going to be really excited, exciting for the weeks to come. I actually thought Semedo looked pretty solid on his debut. He's super clean on the ball and he likes to get forward it might be a little bit too crowded on that right wing with two attacking players like that and I actually felt like they relied a little bit too heavily on their right wing 
always trying to play Admetraori into space, but then not really giving him a lot of options. Raul Jimenez, who's been our sweetheart through a Premier League season in a little bit, didn't have his best game. And what happened was West Ham just capitalized on Wolves missing opportunities. Wolves wasn't very clean in the box, and it allowed players like Bowen to score two goals and Suchek to head in a front post corner off Raul Jimenez that got marked as an own goal for Jimenez that put the game to 3-0. I thought Wolves, for 50 minutes, played pretty decent football. Uh, just really had a hard time shutting down the West Ham counterattack. I thought their back three, Roman Seiss, Willie Bali, and and Connor Cody let them down quite a bit. Otherwise, it was... Yeah, I mean, Wolves had 64% possession. And for a non-top-four side like Wolves to have that against another team in the Premier League, you would expect them to get the victory. But as we've seen so many times, and why... Once again, we love the league. 64% possession can lead to a 4-0 defeat. Yeah, and, and it was just it was just a little bit of sloppiness and, and not really taking their chances very well. Neto had a couple drives into the box where right as he was asked to make a decision, take a shot, lay it off, his touch betrayed him, and he ended up just conceding the ball to West Ham's defense. I really wanted Wolves to ask more questions. You mentioned last week when they played City, they didn't press high enough, and West Ham was a little bit too comfortable in their build-up. I would have liked to see a Wolves counter-press that said, you know, we're the better team with the better talent, with a you know a good aggressive defensive play style. Let's let's make West Ham play. Instead, they let them have too much time when they won the ball back, and they basically were able to find that first pass to Mikel Antonio that set them off on their counterattack, and Wolves paid for that. Yeah, I'd almost at this point now, with the sustained somewhat success they've had in the Premier League, see them start to play sides differently. So they play that five at the back against everyone, um, and it works phenomenally well against the better sides. But when you're playing these lower sides and teams that you're expected to beat i would like to see maybe a change in style or or system um that would allow them to kind of get on that front foot stay on the front foot and be more imposing yeah so that was four nothing a west ham victory over wolves it was a good game i alan irvine who coached in lieu of the sick david moyes was just david moyes 2.0 the guy looked like his brother but he got the win and that was that was West Ham 4, Wolves nothing. And next up on the docket is Fulham, Aston Villa. And I have two, I think, shining pieces of insight from this game, Sev. One is going to be very easy for you to take. The other is hard for me to say and maybe even harder for you to hear. Number one, Jack Grealish is very, very good. He is special. Don't you dare come at Scott Parker. And I'm not entirely sure that Scott Parker is too good at his job. I'm sorry. (laughs) That one hurts because we are, I 
I don't know if our viewers remember, but I crowned myself Scott Parker's number one fan on episode one of the Soccer Football Podcast. I love seeing him on the sideline, but I just, uh, I don't know. Tell me why you don't think he's so good, and then maybe we'll have a conversation about it. I I mean, I just haven't seen anything from Fulham. It's three losses in the row. Aston Villa, they barely stayed in the Premier League this last season. And Fulham, newly promoted, you're supposed to have your tails high, running strong, a lot of momentum. I haven't seen a lot from them, I'm not going to lie. I completely agree. Yeah, it's I. Uh, it's a shame because Fulham and that stadium in London, there's a there's a few sides on in the lower half of the Premier League that when they're in the Premier League, it brings you back to what many people or what I at least think of as the heyday when I was growing up around ten years old. Fulham are always there. West Brom are always there. Those those lower table sides that nearly and I like I'm missing out Wigan. Wigan were a big part of my childhood. But Fulham, I almost feel like are an integral part of the Premier League. They've played a role in it in so many insane years and it's it was great to see them come back into the Premier League, but I think it's gonna be a bigger shame to see them potentially leave because I haven't seen a lot from them. Just deflecting a little bit of the blame from Scott Parker, who is our Lord and Savior that roster is not Premier League quality. It is not. I think Mitrovic will get a move to the Premier League if they do go back down. But I have to. I definitely agree. Um, I mean, if you look at some of these other newly promoted sides, Leeds spending forty million on Rodrigo. They have Bamford. I think Click is a really good player. Helda Costa is a really good player. You go through the Fulham roster. You have Mitrovic. Tom Kearney, I'd maybe say, is Premier League quality. They have that. They have Ariola um, from PSG, who was at one point thought of as the next best thing um, in some places as in goalkeeper. But they started Tim Ream as a defensive midfielder. Luke, they started Tim Ream as a defensive midfielder because Harrison Reed was injured, and Harrison Reed, who's maybe one of their best players. He's a Southampton reject. Like, I don't think that they're a very talented roster. Tim Ream as one of your sixes. It doesn't make any sense. No. And, I I mean, I I kind of agreed there's just not enough talent there. I don't know if where the money is coming from and if there's anything they can do to, to try and turn this around before the transfer window closes. I think Joe Bryan is a good player. Mitrovic, as I said. Tom Kearney is a good player. And Geese has shown me moments here and there but besides that I, I did say Anima I thought I Anima started for them in the championship started in that in that in the playoffs I'm not sure if he's coming off from an injury but he didn't he didn't play in this game um the roster is is not the squad is not up to Premier League standard I think that's there for everyone to see not putting all the game on Scott uh, blame on Scott Parker but I I don't have too high of hopes for a full in this year. But anyway, I, it was basically the Jack Grealish show in this game. He started the scoring after a John McGinn uh, assist. Then he turned provider, passing the ball inside. John McGinn laid it off to Connor Horahan, who made it 2-0. Then Connor Horahan again turned provider for Tyron Min's 
in the second half to make it 3 nothing for Aston Villa. Yeah, I mean, it was it was basically one-way traffic the entire game. Fulham, I didn't really think threatened all that much, even though they did have the majority of the ball. They had more shots. They, they came close here and there, but they were chasing the game from the fourth minute after that early Jack Grealish goal, and I don't have too high hopes for Fulham this year. Where do you think they're going to finish? We'll get to this later, because I know we're doing a little bit of a segment on this, but it's not good. Uh, yeah, I'm scared. I'm a, I love to see teams succeed, and teams barely miss out, but I hate to see teams fail. But now we get to... I think what everyone was calling the game of the weekend, uh, Monday afternoon, and it was my Liverpool versus Sev's Arsenal. And Sev, please start us off. The game was, despite the billing, I think what a lot of people could expect. And what it was, was a Liverpool high press that was ferocious for especially the first 45 minutes. Arsenal had trouble getting anything going out of even their own box because Liverpool pressed with this like front front three, front four of Salah, Firmino, Naby Keita, and Sadio Mane. And what they did was they denied Arsenal center backs, their three center backs, from moving the ball out to the wide positions to their wingbacks. If you follow Arsenal, you know that they love to start their buildup from their wingbacks. And by denying those opportunities, they were able to really shut down any ideas that the Arsenal center backs had. Not to mention Arsenal's playing with two central midfielders, both of which aren't necessarily the most mobile of players with Mohamed Elneny and Granit Xhaka. So by pressing with that front three, or sorry, front four, and denying balls into wide areas... Liverpool just started an onslaught in the first half. Uh, yeah, no, I thought Liverpool were absolutely outstanding. Uh, the first half, just in general, Liverpool's press meant that Arsenal couldn't. As soon as they, as soon as the goalkeeper tried to pass it out to the center backs, they had trouble making a few passes. After that, they were swarmed on. They were kicking it long. It ended up to one of Liverpool's center backs, and Liverpool were able to get back on the ball and start the attack again. However, I thought Arteta's game plan, coming to coming to Anfield's a very difficult thing. Arteta's game plan and the way they set up the defensively made it so difficult for Liverpool to break them down and pass within Arsenal's lines that the best chances Liverpool had normally came from them stealing the ball off Arsenal with that high press uh, close to the goal. Um, if you were watching the game, it normally when Liverpool had the ball deep in their own half, um, it normally took them a solid five-minute move maybe to get past these uh, ranks of Arsenal defenders and really create any type of chance. Arsenal actually pl- pressed us fairly well, uh, Liverpool fairly well, when we had the ball deep, and it was normally long diagonals from Van Dijk or one of the fullbacks that opened up Arsenal uh, when Liverpool had the ball. I mentioned this in my notes. Liverpool, the way that they're constructed and the way that they play is a really tough character foil for Arsenal 
because Arsenal's notoriously struggled against the high press with mistake-prone center backs like Skrodan Mustafi and David Luiz. And when you have a press that's that aggressive, it just opens up the opportunity for mistakes. In that respect, Liverpool is a really tough team for any of the recent Arsenal squads to play. The other thing that Arsenal's really struggled with is good crosses from wide positions. And when you have a player like Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's maybe the best crosser in the Premier League on the right-hand side, I thought so much of the attack came from that right-hand side. And so many dangerous situations were created by Trent hitting in a really, really beautiful cross from his kind of, you know, pushed high right back position. So in that sense, they created a lot of danger. Mane was dangerous as well. I think you were pretty right about Arsenal being able to cut off passing lanes and be difficult to play through. It was really that initiation of a transition game that caused Arsenal to struggle in all areas except the one goal that did happen on a pretty nice build-up that ended with a Lacazette kind of not beautiful finish, but a goal nonetheless. Yeah, the quality Arsenal have up front, I think maybe they're saving grace in other games against some of these tougher opponents in the Premier League this season if they choose to play this way. Um, It was another quick break. We saw it in the Community Shield uh, how quickly Arsenal could break, and they have the quality to hurt anybody at that end of the uh, field. It was an Ainsley Nathan-Niles cross uh, in towards the box, and I believe it was Hector Bellerin that would have been on the end of it. Um, it was William, but William. that's, yeah. Uh, Van Dyke outstretched a leg. He couldn't reach it. It fell to Robertson, who was in a great position to clear. However, I think he was off-put by Van Dyke and ended up um, kicking it backwards towards his own goal to Lacazette, who was lurking in the middle, and his tame finish beat Allison after uh, Allison couldn't get up to save the shot entirely against the run of play. And that was the first touch in the Liverpool box that an Arsenal player had. But it meant that Arsenal took the lead 1-0 in the 25th minute. Um, And the next goal came from Sadio Mane, who I thought was man of the match today. What a player he is. I don't know who I would have given my man of the match to on on Liverpool, but Mane is a good shout. He was pretty dangerous on that left wing the whole game. I haven't really seen many players... I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm going to wax lyrical a little bit here, but I haven't really seen many players be that sharp. He was, from the get-go, you could tell he ran into Hector Bellerin um, a little forcefully. He was trying to uh, body off uh, Kieran Tierney um, on the other side, Um, ended up elbowing him, picked up a yellow card early in the game, which was a little bit of a worry with how aggressive he started the game, but he is... is Nearly unstoppable on his day. He is so quick, so aggressive, so strong, so talented. He really caused problems the entire day. Um, but it was a Mohamed Salah shot. He beat Kieran Tierney on the right-hand side, got inside, whipped in a shot towards the far post, and Mohamed uh, Sadio Mane cleaned up the rebound. A few minutes after that, Liverpool were continuing their dominance. Clearly looked pissed off that they had conceded um, after the game so far. And it was that man that uh, Seb mentioned earlier, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. He whipped in a deep cross from the right-hand side. It went over everybody else. And Andrew Robertson, who was at fault for the first goal, came in at the back post and neatly 
clipped the ball over Bernd Leno with the outside of his left foot and made it 2-1 to Liverpool. Yeah, the second half was a little bit more contested. Arsenal had one opportunity where Danny Ceballos played through Alexander Lacazette, timing his run really well to when the line of Liverpool was trying to move up. And uh, Alisson came off his line and really cut off the angle well and blocked the shot. And then just finally, Jota in the, do you have the minute? Uh, 88th. In the 88th minute, scored off a poor clearance from David Luiz. He took a half volley that was hit pretty perfectly off the inside of the left post and in so that the game ended 3-1 to Liverpool. Final thoughts on the game, Luke? Yeah, I think this is Liverpool's best performance of the season so far. I mean, I've seen quotes thrown around here and there online, um, but by all accounts, after winning the Champions League and the Premier League by a cancer last season, I think it's fair to say, if not the best team in the world, they're top two, top three um, at this point. And we played, Liverpool played absolutely phenomenally. There weren't too many sloppy moments. We do play with a high line that Danny Ceballos passed that cut the defense in half to Lacazette was, was a thing of beauty that we were lucky not to get punished by. But on the balance of play, I thought we were worth every cent of that 3-1 win. Agreed. Completely agreed. So, that does it for our weekly summary. We recapped all 10 Premier League games this weekend. Went a little bit long, but hopefully it was an enjoyable segment. Hopefully you learned something about the match week three of the Premier League season. We'll be right back with some segments. All right, welcome back. We have our first segment this week, and it's everybody's favorite segment. It's Referee of the Week, and this is a soccer football podcast first. The Referee of the Week category has two winners this week, the first being Anthony Drillbit Taylor. He awarded a penalty in the UEFA Super Cup this week, played between Bayern Munich and Sevilla. Shout out to a Premier League ref getting some big-time minutes in the UEFA Super Cup. And he does this thing that he does best, awarding that free kick for Ivan Rakitic so that Sevilla could take the opening lead in that game. Yeah, phenomenal performance. Got a shout-out, an Englishman going over to continental Europe, proving his stuff. Big ups. We're very proud. And the second winner in the Referee of the Week is Michael Oliver. Three penalties. Not one, not two, but three penalties. Three penalties. In the Man City versus Leicester City game. I mean, they're probably all penalties, but he definitely stole the show in that one. A lot of questions asked, and what a performance. If you do not know who he is, look him up, and then every game you ever watch that he is refereeing, just watch for facial expressions, because he's absolutely classic. He's almost got like a baby face type thing going. He looks very young, but he his look to players when something goes on oh, he's and they like, question no. him, he, no. is, he wants none of it. Nothing. He wants none of it. Nope. He's, he's probably my favorite referee, honestly. But anyways, those were our two winners of the Referee of the Week segment. We're very proud of them. Favorite segment. Everybody's favorite segment. Two winners. And now, the top five in form. Top five in form. Number one, keeping his place. Or not in order, but 
keeping his place from last week. It is Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Yeah, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's been absolutely on fire. The man can't stop scoring. He cannot stop scoring. He is gunning for that striker position. Um, maybe even taking away Captain Kane's job in the England national team. Probably not. But he has been Probably on not. fire this season. He is propelling that Everton team to new heights. The first 3 no start for them in 27 years. He is a man possessed. Yeah, much deserved. The second name in the top five in form list is Jamie Vardy. Another hat trick against Pep. Uh, I think he has a thing for ball people. He just doesn't seem to like him. <laughs> he is electric. I mean, again, a couple penalties. He had that phenomenal finish. We already went in depth about that. But he's such a good penalty taker. Both those penalties, nobody would have seen them coming. They were hit perfectly. Very impressive. Already on a really, really good pace to be the, the golden boot winner this year. Yeah, he won it last year. I could see him definitely taking it again this year. He is that goal threat on the Leicester side, and they look pretty solid so far this season. Number three, and it is, I think, one of your, or quickly becoming one of your favorite players, Patrick Bamford. Yeah, Patrick Bamford had a game-winning goal this week. Simple as that. He got up for a cross from Jack Harrison and buried it and kept leads on some really good form. He now has three goals plus two assists in three games. And, I mean, how can you take a guy off the informed list who just scored a game-winning goal? Yeah, I completely agree, especially in a team like that. Obviously, the top sides would probably score more, but in a newly promoted side, putting up those numbers so far, I think that's totally deserved. And number four is actually a man on a team of someone that was in the top five last week but has now done enough these past two weeks, I think, to displace him. Uh, it is Sadio Mane. We gave Mane the match, of the, man, uh, the man of the match performance for his performance this week. Like I said, I probably agree. And he was just phenomenal. And he had two goals last week, had a goal this week, both against top six sides. I mean, it pretty much a shoe-in at that point. Yeah, and there's always debate about who is the, the leading light in that top three. But Sadio Mane, the past two weeks' performances, he is really, really out for something this year. Uh, he was just on one for minute one in the game against Arsenal and fully deserving. And maybe a tough one. It was tough to take off human son. And we were even considering Harry Kane after his assist this, this week. Um, but after the tie, I think it is another man from a lower league side who has had a phenomenal start to the season. Scored his third goal of the season this week. It is Danny Ings. Yeah, we didn't talk about it because we didn't talk about that game because that game was really boring. But he had a nice finish. He finished a cross from Che Adams that was a little bit behind him. The goalie, Nick Pope, had gone out of net to challenge Che Adams. And he took that ball that was crossed a little bit behind him and basically just scooped it home for one nothing. He's in good goal-scoring form. He has three goals in three weeks. We love him because... He gets shit goals, and that was a shit goal, but definitely deserving for his early season performance. Yeah, absolutely clinical. And that was top five in form. Again, if your player missed out this week, he has a chance to be back next week. It's cumulative. We love everybody equally. That's our top five in form. We'll give you five more next week. And now it is time for our way too early 
top four and bottom four predictions. New segment. New segment. New segment. New segment alert. New segment. And so this is our way too early top four, bottom four predictions. We've had three games now from uh, nearly every side in the Premier League. Kind of somewhat enough to uh, kind of get the gist of how these teams are going to be playing. They're called way too early predictions for a reason. Yeah, I'm trying to justify them, but you are phenomenally right. So start me off somewhere, anywhere. Well, I don't know if you wrote – did you write yours down? Kind of. Mine are coming right off the dome. So I'll give you my top four. No, I'll give you I'll give you my top four first. In no particular order. Don't make me do that. No, you gotta do the order. Okay. At least for top four. I'll do Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, Leicester City. Wow. I'm not gonna lie. I was I had that exact same top four probably about two hours ago, and it may have changed. Yeah, I just think Leicester City, they just look like they are just the team that knows what they want to do about as well as any team in the Premier League. They they just have so much quality in the midfield. Jamie Vardy is not gonna stop scoring. We already know that. Castagna looks like a star. James Justin looks really good. Soyan Chu looks good. They um they got some some bad news this week with the injury to Ndidi. But they're gonna get Ricardo Piero back, Pereira back. They have so much talent in the midfield. They just are a consistent side. I don't know what happened after the restart last year, but I I mean they're my fourth team. And then the top three. I don't think there's too much confusion. I didn't put Manchester United, and they'd probably be my fifth team. Arsenal and, and Tottenham would be fighting for six. I, I don't really trust Tottenham for some weird reason. Arsenal are a couple of years away. I like the direction they're heading in, but that's my top four. Uh, I'm, I almost want to change. Like As I said, two hours ago, I had the exact same top four. From the start to the season, I think Liverpool, Man City, um, I think it's going to be one of the two orders for those two sides. I still don't think anyone in the Premier League has caught up to them enough um, to really take that away. Chelsea have had a few wobbles, haven't looked great, have dropped a fair few points already. But I think the the talent on the on that squad on that roster is now nearly insurmountable um, for any team to kind of take that away from them. We will see. I think they're third. As I said, I had Leicester fourth in my original prediction. Um, but I think I'm going to put Spurs in at number four just because Jose Mourinho had a bad run of form with and luck with injuries last season. And... He still did bring that Tottenham side from someplace in the bottom 10 to 6th or 5th last year. Um, and I think as long as some players stay healthy, the man's a born winner. He's proven it before. I think they may just sneak in there ahead of Leicester. Interesting. What about your bottom three or bottom four? Oh, well, that would be... Fulham, sorry. 20th. 
I think Fulham or bottom, to be completely honest. Um, then uh, 19th is a hard one for me, but I might go West Brom. Then I think I am going, despite this weekend, West Ham. My, my bottom three is exactly the same. Fulham just don't really? have the talent. I mean, it's blat- for me, it's blatantly obvious. They just don't have the talent to stay up. I don't think West Brom do and either, to be West Brom, honest, they have the attacking talent, I think, to, to make some noise, to win some games, but they don't have the depth. Their center backs are unproven. They're going back down to, unfortunately, a team that I kind of have grown to like a little bit. And for me, that bottom spot, that the, the, the last relegation spot is going to be... A, the teams, I think, that are going to be in it are Burnley, who have been safe for a while now, but it's going to be sooner or later before people figure them out and their long balls stop yeah. working and Sean, Sean Dyche's style just stops working. <laughs> I think Southampton is going to be in there. Southampton are very close to my to being that last spot for me. And and I hate to say it, Sheffield United also. Sheffield United are in trouble, man. They haven't scored a goal yet. They don't have a very talented roster. They're in trouble. They may have got the rub of the green, and they may be one of those sides that need those those home fixtures with the crowd involved. Um, they're they're very or slightly similar to Burnley in the sense that they're quite defensive and if they don't get the luck of the draw in in a few games this season the way it started for them and they can't figure out who's who's that star striker and where the goals are coming from they could definitely go down yeah i think that they their the next 4 weeks will be very telling the next 3 weeks will be very telling if they can start to get some points and show us that last year wasn't that that style is maintainable for the long haul then in my opinion they'll be safe but through three weeks they're struggling quite a bit yeah and if i had to pick one more team there it would probably be newcastle Mm -hmm. but from what i've seen jamal lewis i hope the injury isn't too bad and callum wilson have definitely improved that side uh but that is our way too early top four Bottom three predictions. Don't hold me to it. Hold me to it. Honestly, I'm pretty confident in that prediction. I can predict the Premier League. No, that is that is our way too early top four, bottom three. It is what it is. We said what we said. As long as Liverpool win. As long as Liverpool win, according to Luke. If Arsenal made top four, that would be awesome. I'm not holding my breath. Honestly, I'm a pretty I'm a, I'm a realist. I'm not an optimist, unfortunately. But... Along with the top four, bottom three, that is the end of our week three episode of the Soccer Football Podcast. This week, we went over some transfers. We went in depth on the handball controversy that has been taking over the sport this weekend. We gave you a weekly recap in three segments that were referee of the week, top five in form, and our top four, bottom three. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Once again, hope you learned something. Hope we made you laugh. Hope Luke had a take that he's going to regret having. Maybe not. Probably not. not. <laughs> we'll be back with Smeek's Pickums before the end of the week. Till next time. Fade me if you want. Peace.
Ooh. Love you guys.